This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for July 21st, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and with me is Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. We're joined today by Dr. Katrina Armstrong, the Jackson Professor of Clinical Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Chair of Medicine and Physician-in-Chief at Massachusetts General Hospital. Katrina's research has been in primary care, covering areas ranging from decision-making to cancer prevention and outcomes. One of her current responsibilities at MGH is mentoring trainees and faculty. COVID-19 has had a profound effect on current trainees, and we'd like to hear your thinking, Katrina, about training in an epidemic era. First, though, let's discuss a couple of articles that we published today. One of the big questions with no clear answer is the extent to which children and adolescents drive the continuing epidemic. Schools, for example, are congregate settings where transmission could be particularly problematic, and many children aren't yet eligible for vaccination, so they remain unprotected. What did we learn from the study we published today? This study wasn't actually done in schools. It was done in a place where there's much closer contact, the household. The investigators took advantage of a natural experiment. There was a large outbreak of COVID-19 at an overnight camp in the state of Georgia. Since infected kids went home to their families, this provided a chance to look at transmission from them to the other family members. It was a retrospective study based on interviews, so it doesn't have the same power that a prospective study would with active case finding. Nevertheless, the findings are helpful in thinking about this problem. There were a total of 224 index patients between 7 and 19 years old who went home, the vast majority of them having or developing symptoms. Of a total of more than 500 household contacts, 375 received COVID-19 tests, and 46 of these were positive. Most of these secondary cases occurred after contact with campers who developed symptoms after their return home, not during camp. Transmission occurred in about 20% of households. Not surprisingly, infection rates increased with proximity. Most of those infected had close contact with returning campers, and infection was more common in households that did not practice physical distancing. Most of those infected were adults, and all of the hospitalizations and secondary cases occurred in adults. So what does this mean for children and adolescents as vectors? Clearly, within the home, they can effectively transmit disease. It's a little difficult to extrapolate to other settings like schools, but it looks as if social distancing, which is much easier to practice at schools than at home, might be effective. I'm not advocating for any particular guidelines here. How much we'll need to take measures will largely be driven by the community rates when kids return to school in the fall. But with rates rising, it's something that we really are going to have to think about before school starts. So Eric, these data highlight several important features. Children can and do transmit SARS-CoV-2. These types of outbreaks where one can measure the dynamics of transmission allow us to better understand some of the factors that may impact transmission in congregate or closed settings. There's much that we don't know. The nature of the exposure as we all interact with our children, how do we minimize and measure the amount of exposure in terms of physical contact, sharing of food, and other household dynamics? So it's very complicated to understand the nature of the exposure, the amount of virus that may be transmitted. And it also, we don't know issues around viral virulence features as we currently witness the alpha, beta, delta variants, and what viral virulence factors may play 
in some of the transmission events that we witness and try to derive public health principles from. Also, symptoms may not be overwhelming in those who are infected and may be able to transmit and may even be minimal. The need for vaccines for those under 12 is even more important as we understand the role they may and can play in transmission. So implications going forward, particularly as we look at schools resuming in the fall, how do we think about vaccines for more of our children? Where does testing fit in and where do physical barriers such as distancing, masking, and other techniques to decrease transmission? These are all things that will have to be carefully thought about as we better understand the role children play in transmission. One other point I take from this, Lindsay, is something you alluded to, which is we're very glib about the idea of quarantine and isolation. And that sounds good in principle. But in fact, having an infected individual in a household is very challenging. In many households, people share bedrooms and you just can't separate from a child for too long. So there have been extreme versions in China where people are placed actually in facilities where they're isolated or quarantined, very different from what we've done here. But I think the household is always going to be a unique setting. I do want to separate that idea from institutional settings like schools and like hospitals where we really can have good control measures. But I think we're always going to be limited in what we can do within a home. Even within schools or camps, I think it's very challenging. Kids play with each other. My 12-year-old son is going to the day camp this week. How many other kids is he physically interacting with because children need to run around engage each other and exercise. And therefore, what kinds of risks of exposure do they have? I think it's extremely challenging to really understand the nature of exposure in our younger individuals, given how they engage the world and need to engage the world. And I do think that schools will be very challenging in the fall, just like camp is challenging currently. You know, Eric and Lindsay, I wonder if I could jump in for a second, because I think you're bringing up two critical points here. One is about the exposure, but the other is about the in-household transmission. And, you know, one of the things we need to do much better is to prevent that when a kid comes home and thinking about the differences in households who have the resources to be able to do that and households that don't have the resources. And how maybe we can think about the educational system as a way to invest not just in what's happening in the classroom, but then in what happens outside of the classroom. And wouldn't there be an opportunity there to break not just the exposure within the schools, but then the ability of households to actually prevent transmission within the household? Katrina, I think you raised an extremely important point there, and that's the equity issue, how much capacity different households are going to have to deal with an infected individual is really dependent on how big is the house, for example. And so we have to be very cognizant of that. It's not a simple problem, as you say. It's not clear that there are easy solutions, especially for children who have to be near their parents. And that's going to be true in any size house with any sorts of resources. Nevertheless, this is one of the drivers of the inequities during the epidemic. And I think we need to think more broadly than SARS-CoV-2. This goes for the other respiratory viruses and many other infections that run rampant in our communities. 
and how we break transmission and the consequences of these infections on the children and the families. Eric, you mentioned the rising rates of COVID-19 in the United States and around the world. One of the big concerns there is the appearance of B16172, the Delta variant. It's clear that this strain is spreading rapidly and is becoming the dominant virus in many places. We published an article today from the UK where two vaccines are being used, Chadox-1 from AstraZeneca and BNT162B2 from Pfizer. How did that study work? Steve, these investigators used a couple of approaches to determine how well vaccination worked against Delta. Their main analysis used a study design that's become increasingly common to try to determine real-world effectiveness of the two vaccines that are being used. This approach is called the test-negative design. To do this, they looked at a broad range of people who presented with symptoms of COVID-19 and had PCR testing, then compared the proportion who were vaccinated and unvaccinated who had positive tests versus those who had negative tests. This is far simpler than a prospective randomized controlled trial, though it isn't perfect. They then did a second analysis looking at the proportion of people who were vaccinated who were infected with either the predominant strain early on, the B117 or alpha strain, and delta. If that proportion varied with vaccination, it would suggest that the vaccine efficacy was different between the two vaccines. The UK has an excellent record-keeping system, and they were able to determine all tests and the vaccine status of all tested individuals. In addition, a substantial proportion of viral isolates were sequenced for typing, rising to about 60% by the end of the study in May 2021. As we've seen in other studies, there's a considerable lag between the administration of first and second vaccine doses in the UK. So researchers separately analyzed efficacy after each dose. So Eric, these data are important for us to understand vaccine effectiveness as it gets deployed. What this research highlights is when one does a case control design, one has to really think very carefully about the comparator group. In an RCT, placebo-controlled, presumably the two groups that are studied are identical other than the intervention, and that is what randomization helps us mitigate. In this type of retrospective design, who should you compare those with COVID to? And one of the designs that has emerged is the test negative, the idea being that you should compare those with COVID to those who had symptoms like COVID but didn't have it. And that mitigates some of the biases of other types of control groups, but then has its own issues that one has to weigh. But I think as we look at vaccine effectiveness studies in different communities, understanding the comparator group will be critical for us to properly understand the effectiveness of the vaccines. One macro look, which we've discussed before, is one can just look at overall communities like states or countries. And if one sees dramatic decline in illness associated with vaccine deployment, it gets hard to have a control group. But does one need a control group if disease is largely minimized or approaching the asymptote of extremely low? But I think we do have to think about these different designs as we try to understand vaccine effectiveness in the real world. So with those caveats, what did these investigators find? This group drew from an enormous database. In the end, they had more than 19,000 infections with sequenced samples, almost 15,000 alpha and more than 4,000 delta. The groups weren't exactly comparable as a group infected with Delta were more likely to have traveled or to be of South Asian ethnicity, 
which probably represented importation of the virus into certain communities early in the emergence of Delta. And the bottom line, a single dose of vaccine protected only moderately well against either variant, but was somewhat more effective against alpha. But while there was a slight difference, both vaccines protected extremely well against either variant after a second vaccine dose. In both cases, the Pfizer vaccine was a bit more effective than the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a finding that's been consistent in other studies. Altogether, it doesn't appear that the Delta variant presents a brand new threat to those who've been vaccinated, but it does spread more easily. And that would suggest that the outbreaks that we're seeing of Delta, including those among vaccinated individuals, are more due to exposure than to lack of protection. And I think that based on other studies, we can probably extrapolate from these findings to the other vaccines that use the same spike glycoprotein antigen, which is most of the vaccines in use in the world. So Eric, what I learned from this is that the effectiveness of the vaccines for alpha versus delta is similar. You know, it's a little bit less for the Pfizer vaccine for delta than alpha, a little bit less for the AstraZeneca vaccine for the alpha versus delta, but it's still proportionately the similar comparing the two vaccines. What's very difficult to assess in this kind of design are the differences between the populations, as you suggest. There are differences in the communities that are affected. There are maybe differences in the viral inoculum because there may be intrinsic properties of the virus in terms of transmissibility and viral load. There are also temporal differences where alpha was present earlier in this study period and delta was more prevalent later in this study period. All factors that may bring in variance in how we understand the effectiveness. Overall, the effectiveness is still pretty good for Delta, yet slightly less. What I will highlight is effectiveness against what, which is largely symptomatic illness. They didn't have enough events to look at serious illness and death. So we have to also remember when we look at effectiveness, it's effectiveness for what? And symptomatic illness leading to confirmed diagnosis is often what we use given the features it mitigates. On the other hand, it's not necessarily the outcome of greatest importance. I thought you were going a different way with that, Lindsay, because we also don't know the effectiveness against asymptomatic disease. And since we know that those with asymptomatic infection can spread disease, we don't know about how outbreaks can occur with vaccination. I think that most of the data we have are encouraging that asymptomatic disease runs with symptomatic disease and rates of effectiveness in other variants with other vaccines tend to be quite similar, whether asymptomatic or symptomatic. And nevertheless, I think that when it comes to thinking about the public health aspects, as opposed to individual risk, we have to keep that in mind. Let's turn to training. Katrina, you recently published an article looking at the impact of the epidemic on research training. But before we get to that, I'd like to ask about clinical training. During the height of the epidemic, many residents and fellows spent much of their time caring for COVID-19 patients rather than getting the broad or specialized experiences they ordinarily would have. How do you think this has influenced them? Well, Steve, it's such a great and critical question. You know, we were just reflecting on that. I think our junior class, so that's the second year residents, 
essentially spent their entire spring of that year in ICU, so in critical care units, something that would never have happened before. And so we're just starting to unravel this impasse. You know, I think about it, I think that, you know, the first thing I think of is that they just did an unbelievable job. The level of professionalism, what they experienced, you know, their experience of leadership at that time from within their ranks, I think will change them forever. But you know, I will also say that I think there's also my sense is that I'm guessing there's going to be a change in the focus on the fields they go into. I actually started my training, and I'm thinking maybe that's true for Eric, at a time when HIV was the most common diagnosis we were caring for. And people went into infectious diseases in droves with the sense of what we could do. I think we've got Lindsay and Eric here on this podcast representing that. I will also say, you know, I think we're going to see an incredible attention to issues of equity. We just talked about equity and how we think about transmission, but the residents, Steve, were on the front lines seeing the inequity of the COVID pandemic in a way that I don't think anybody honestly had experienced since HIV. And so they are absolutely driven to address health inequity. They understand the impact of racism in a way that I never really thought I would see in terms of the motivations across everybody, whether you're thinking about cardiology or infectious diseases. But I think we have to be careful, right? Because as much as we're thinking about the positive impact that this experience may have had on them, we know that the level of exhaustion, the burnout that is existing across the medical workforce is really pretty high. And so as I think about it, Steve, is both how do we harness this experience to help them lead in the future, but also how do we deal right now with what they've already given to this pandemic, not just the loss of different types of experiences, but just the number of hours that they've cared for patients with COVID-19 over the last year and a half. Katrina, those are great observations. And I'd add from working with residents and fellows in the hospital during the height of the epidemic that it is always nice to work with a group of younger and very idealistic people. And I think that this gave them the opportunity to step up in a way that I don't think we were ever called on to. Certainly, we learned responsibility for patients and the idea of ownership of problems during residency. But we didn't get that in the face of the kind of adversity that the residents and fellows did. It took a huge toll on them personally and their interactions with their own families and their inability to do anything outside of work with all those long work hours. And I know this word's been thrown around a lot, but a lot of the work they did was truly heroic. They were doing it at their own risk. We didn't understand transmission. We didn't understand anything about therapy at the time. It was extremely impressive. Um, I think that that experience can only help them in trying to set the values that they will have going forward. That being said, I worked with a lot of cardiology fellows who didn't do normal cardiology fellow stuff, and they did miss out, I think, on some of the things that are just bread and butter. And I hope that they don't pay a price for that coming up. Eric, I think that's so true. I guess the other point that I'd make, you know, is their leadership was not just in that direct patient care, but was actually in thinking about, even as we talked about what could be done for schools to take care of their communities. You know, our residents early on figured out that patients coming in from some of our more disadvantaged communities had no way to actually prevent transmission at home. We have pictures all over the department of them putting together bags that they got of donated supplies so that patients could take them home. So Erica, I think we're gonna see a change not only in their own sense of leadership, 
but in the issues they're taking on. And I also think actually in their belief that they can affect those issues. We changed healthcare essentially overnight. And I think the excuses that we've had that we can't do these things, I don't think this generation is going to buy it moving forward, Eric. I think they're going to hold us accountable. And I hope we're going to lead to a new era where we are taking on some of these critical issues that affect health across our country and across the world. I mean, I think that we've talked a bit about the inpatient problem, where I agree it was incredibly heroic. Given a year ago, we had no idea how this was transmitted and the severity of illness was not fully appreciated with large numbers of severe illness and death. And they were firefighters running into the fire. It was truly amazing. I wonder and worry a bit about how outpatient care, you know, the less acute, the less severe problems that our patients face and how that has changed. And I wonder, Katrina, your thoughts on how does outpatient care change in a way given the virtual visits and all sorts of interacting that now can occur that we didn't do two years ago, but we also have a year with very little outpatient care. Where do you see that emerging in the training and in our future care? Lizzie, I think it's a great question. You know, we have so much focus. And as you know, so much of medical training and surgical training is inpatient focused. And we've struggled, I would say, over the last decades to figure out how to shift more and more of that to the ambulatory setting. And we've made a lot of progress. But as you say, if we look at what happened in COVID, right, we were back to the idea that we didn't have patients in an exam room where a resident could see them and bring in a preceptor. They were on Zoom. We were trying to get everybody on Zoom. You know, I would say, here are the good stories. So everybody's coming to their ambulatory conference. We never used to have that. So everybody's there, right? So my train was late, doesn't really buy it anymore, right? We're seeing everybody come to conferences. So there's a positive side of it. And I do think those things matter. I think the thing that we're also seeing is the ability to precept over Zoom, the ability to actually come together in the virtual room with the patient. And we're learning how to make that work. But I think, you know, my sense is we're going to get there. I think the part that everybody will say was one of the great losses of the pandemic was the actual kind of connection, human connection that really only comes with the ability to sit next to somebody often in silence and be part of their journey. And Lindsay, I couldn't agree with you more. There's no way we should be training a generation of leaders that doesn't experience that, both on the inpatient side, which as you may remember, we lost also, but really in that ambulatory longitudinal practice where you really learn what it means to be a partner with a patient and their family and their journey. Katrina, in your article, you say that this has also been a particularly difficult time for research trainees and even junior faculty who haven't yet fully established their research programs. So what kinds of problems are you seeing there? Well, Steve, I think that's such a critical issue. And you know, from my perspective, one of the things that the pandemic has highlighted is just how critical those young people are for the future of, honestly, <laughs> our society, because if you think about where we are now, we just heard about great articles talking about transmission and talking about vaccination effectiveness, but none of that would be possible if we didn't have scientists and investigators who were actually both developing vaccines, but also studying these issues. 
And I think so often we haven't focused enough on how did that happen? How did we actually get to the point where we could be developing these vaccines? And so for us, as we looked at the pandemic, we talked about the first impact upon the residents, which was really, I think, both as Eric said, a heroic transformation of their experience. I would say the second thing we started to see was that our investigators were really suffering. So the first thing that happened, Steve, was they had to shut down their labs. And I'll just kind of put this in context. For many investigators, it can take maybe months, years to get to the point of being able to do an experiment, an enormous amount of preparation that goes into that. So then overnight to have put months of time into getting to that point and then being told that labs were shut down, which had to happen at the time, it set people back months in their timeline, but maybe more importantly, it really created trouble in terms of their funding streams, Steve. So if you think about it, the way that it works is I'll write a grant, often I'll get five years of funding, and then I'm supposed to make progress within that five years to get the next grant. So if you lose a year and a half, so many people were worried about getting a grant. And if you think about it, that's particularly true for those young people, right? The people who are just starting getting their first grant or moving from what we call a career development award to the major independent grants. You know, my sense is that we already talked about this also, but this was particularly challenging for individuals who had families at home, small children. You know, when I think back to the stories, and I'm sure Eric, as he was thinking about the schools or Lindsay was talking about his own children, like the idea of being able to run a lab and then have your own kids at home, trying to keep them safe. Childcare was shut down, schools were shut down. So for most young investigators with families, the added stress of trying to manage that meant that even if they could have been moving forward any of their science during this time, it was essentially impossible. You know, and then Steve, I'll just bring up that we talked about the experience on the clinical side, but that was true for the residents, but also for many of our faculty. We pulled faculty in to care for patients in COVID-19 floors. If you were a critical care doc, your value to the COVID-19 pandemic couldn't be overestimated. And so many of our critical care docs were working on the front lines just over that entire spring and then again in the fall. I know we're talking to two ID docs here, and I'm quite sure that most of those, our ID docs were working nonstop. And then Steve, the only other thing I'll add is that we look at what happened. So if we think about labs shutting down, the clinical demands, the demands at home, add on that the issues that we already talked about inequity and people who have already trying to make ends meet on what is a very modest salary for many of the postdocs, many of the individuals in this case. And if you didn't come from a family with resources, I particularly worry that this impact is going to be very uneven. And we're going to see some people survive that, and then we're going to lose generations who could be transforming science when we have the next major public health threat. So in your article, you suggest a couple of approaches to ameliorate some of the difficulties that researchers are facing. Let's start with the local. What can a single institution do right now to help support trainees and more junior investigators? You know, Steve, I think that we've learned a lot going through this. I will say the first thing that I think is absolutely critical is that people just have to both listen and reach out to the investigators in their institutions. 
we need to figure out how to be flexible and meet people where they are. I've heard fantastic stories from all over the country about different individuals and leadership coming up with programs to support investigators in their own institutions. Those included changing how they think about tenure clocks. Those have included new mentorship programs. Those have included new funding streams. But I will say, Steve, if you can think about it from my perspective, the thing that has been most successful is just recognizing the critical importance of this group of individuals and trying to do anything we can to help them get to that next step. Usually that's the next grant. And sometimes it's actually figuring out how to get a lab, a certain type of equipment. We often talk about precision medicine or personalized medicine. But Steve, I think we've moved to precision faculty development here. We need to actually be thinking about each person and moving forward with that. So I'd say there's a lot going on at every institution, but unless people are paying attention to it and actually looking out for those faculty and the trainees, I think there could be a loss here without a lot of attention. So I'd say that on the local level, that's where I am. We need to be thinking about these folks. We need to be investing in these folks, but we need to recognize that we've got to meet people where they are. I'll share an example, Steve. You know, we started early on an idea that we needed to support people with childcare in their homes. We set up a program where we would help bring in childcare providers. And I was thinking about it with the first article. It turns out that at that time, people didn't want new people in their homes. They didn't know, right? There was an enormous amount of fear. The kids were already incredibly stressed. It turns out the last thing that they wanted was for me to find some person and have them show up on their doorstep at eight o'clock in the morning that they'd never met before. So Steve, I think it's humility here, really understanding what people need and then building those programs and paying attention. Katrina, it's interesting. You didn't mention COVID until you got to the very end there. You didn't mention anything COVID specific. So how much of what you're talking about is really about encouraging trainees and junior faculty in any situation as opposed to just now? No, Eric, I think it's such a great point. You know, COVID has been a stress test for so many parts of our system, but my sense is that one of those parts has clearly been this investigator pipeline question. And so we know that the proportion of individuals going into science, particularly from a medical background, has been declining over time. We know that the age for somebody to get their first independent grant has been going up dramatically. And so I think what we're seeing now is that we haven't sufficiently invested both locally and nationally in this critical social good. And so when a stress event like COVID happens, it starts to unravel. And so I think it's pointing out something that the country needs to do that is a major focus for how we're going to stay healthy in the future. And I think it's such a great point, Eric, because, you know, there's specific things to COVID. But if you actually talk to the investigators, this is not only about COVID. This is a problem that we've had for some time. Along the lines of COVID, as you alluded to, Katrina, and I know this is self-serving, but I think the way out of the epidemic was through science was through rigorous scientific process, which is what our young investigators bring and are our future. And the challenge that you're proposing is a resource one. 
We have so many unmet needs across society, across healthcare, across our communities. And how do we address or prioritize the issues of resources where they have the biggest impact? And I'm biased because I think science through strategic investment has had the biggest impact on getting us out of COVID, despite the many, many problems. And the next generation is our future. And we must figure out ways to enable them to be successful. But isn't this a resource and priority question? So, yes, I would say pretty much everything can be broken down into land, labor, and capital, if you think about it. So I think that's a lesson maybe somebody taught me in Econ 101 a long time ago. So I couldn't agree more that this is about resources, although I will say, you know, Lindsay, my sense is it is about money, and we could talk about money, and I've got lots of ideas about where to find the money. But, you know, I would also say, as I mentioned, I do think it's about attention. I think it's about recognizing the importance of this and then having senior investigators actually pay attention to this also. So one of the things, Lindsay, that we started was actually, and I know that you were part of this, was actually efforts to try to have senior investigators who were being asked to put in grants, to put in supplements. We put in a supplement to a grant we had. So instead of doing that without actually involving the junior investigators, we actually created kind of a matching game where actually our junior investigators were then funded and supported in their science off of these supplement grants that otherwise really only went to individuals who already were funded. You know, a desperately sad thing to see for many junior investigators who were trying to start their labs. Lizzie, you know, I will just say, maybe I'll point out where the money could come from. If you look at what's happened now, we've made enormous amounts of economic recovery based upon that science. So I think there's time now for some really innovative private-public partnerships in this area. I think, you know, I don't know, you all probably have the data more up to date, but the last time I looked, I think even Pfizer alone was scheduled to make tens of billions of dollars, potentially. We add in some of the other companies, if we look at where we are today, imagine what we could do for the future of science if we were to bring those types of investments together with the academic infrastructure, together with where the country is headed in terms of economic recovery. I mean, you could imagine that we would have gotten out of this pandemic even faster if we had had that type of investment. There's both the rewards that many companies will achieve, as you've alluded to. There's also the multi-trillion dollar catastrophe that occurred last year. And so there's the avoidance of all of the losses that occurred, as well as the potential rewards for success. So there are many lines of thought that could support this. And it's a trivial amount of money in that scope and scale. On the other hand, we all know how every dollar is fought over, but we need to make our investments. Right. I mean, Lindsay, if you think about it, and I know you know this, but I was actually thinking about this uh, this morning. So when I got a career development award, and I'm a little bit hesitant to say when that was, but let's say it's some 20 so years ago, you know, I received $90,000 from the National Cancer Institute for my salary. And guess how much, I know that you all know this, but guess how much they give today in 2021, some 25 years later? Heavily inflation adjusted. 
So not, right? So we're at $90,000. You know, it sounds like there are large investments needed, but the amount of money compared to what we have and what we spend is relatively modest to make a big difference here. So I think if you look at it, there were only a thousand new K-23 awards. So that most classic physician scientist career development award last year. So think about what we could do in a public-private partnership that would actually increase those, provide more money to those young folks in the pipeline. Nothing could be more important. And honestly, the dollars here compared to the 23 billion are really relatively modest to make an enormous impact here. So Katrina, imagine in all of this that you're the empress of the NIH. You don't have to deal with Congress. You don't have to deal with advisory boards. How would you change the funding system to support the pipeline of investigators? So Steve, I have to say I'm such a fan of imagining I'm the empress of NIH. I may do that all day. That seems like a good way to think about this. My sense in picking up on what we were saying is that I think the first thing we need to do is actually, as Lindsay has pointed out, is we need to look at the size of the investment we're making in this part of our portfolio. And I would say we should triple it. We should recognize what those young scientists have done for the country, for where we are now. And I think we should triple it. And I think that should come from many different sources, but be managed through the NIH. I also think we've got to both support the young scientists and we have to support their mentors. Mentors are critical in this. So that can be whether or not it's financial support, recognition in other ways. Steve, you may know there's an amazing grant they give for mid-career mentoring that I think we need to double down on right now. Mentoring could not be more important. And then I will say the third leg of my NIH Empress stool would really be thinking about how do we invest in infrastructure? If we're building back better, if there's an infrastructure plan out there, that infrastructure needs to give scientists access to the resources they need to move their science forward. And you know, those aren't just novel ways of doing sequencing or maybe for COVID-19, thinking about new ways of testing and clinical studies like we heard about but those are going to be things like childcare, support for groups that don't actually have the ability to have the resources themselves to do all of that. We just can't rely on this patchwork that has not been there during these critical times of the pandemic. We've got to make investments in infrastructure like childcare, scientific resources, and all of the things that will enable our investigators to actually continue to stay in their labs and move the science forward. So that's my three wishes, if I get three wishes. So we've got to triple the investment in the young people themselves. We've got to start supporting mentors and that's absolutely critical and good mentors. And then we've got to really, if we're investing in the infrastructure in this country, there's nothing more important than the infrastructure to support investigators. And I would put that at the top of the list. Katrina, first, I'd point out that as empress of the NIH, you don't get three wishes. That's for the NIH genie. But I think those are excellent points. And we have to do so much to try to enable our trainees to be successful. At the same time, there's a longer career issue that I think we always have to keep in mind, which is there should be jobs on the other end for these people. We should have training that's commensurate with the amount of research that we're willing to sustain as a society. And to echo what Lindsay said, 
if there's any lesson from this epidemic, it's that science is what's taking us out of it. And I think it shows the value of the enterprise, not just of sustaining people at a certain point in their career, but at investment in large part over the entire scientific career of these people. Eric, I completely agree. And actually, if you think about it, maybe this is a positive part of it. The number of young people now who want to go into science or go into medicine has grown dramatically, right? So even though we're talking today about this kind of generation that we could lose, that would just be extraordinarily tragic. In your vision, we could develop a whole pipeline program, starting from the youngest all the way through. One of the things that NIH, do I get a fourth wish? If I get a fourth wish, one of the things that NIH could do is actually to do a better job supporting the research scientist model. So individuals who finish PhD training and then go into a lab and will actually be supported. Right now, grants often don't have the ability to support those individuals. And so they end up, um, many investigators hire more postdocs. I think if we could make a big push Eric, to diversify the careers, to enable people to have many different ways to move their science forward, I think that would help us also, as you say, on that next step when everybody's going to be looking for a job and be able to contribute in the way that fits them best. And just to extend that, Katrina, given some of our earlier comments, how we think about science, it's not just the lab with the test tubes. It actually is the home and the way in which virtual care can actually lead to virtual research with sensors and home interactions and a whole cadre of scientists to enable us to better implement advances, I think is just there's so many dimensions we need to go in and to support creative individuals who are committed to solving those problems. And we need to, as you said, we need to double and triple down on our commitment to that because the benefits in health will enable all of us and all of society to do better. And Lindsay, my sense is it's COVID-19 is going to change our science in many ways. And I think you highlighted one. You know, another one is I do think the issues of equity are going to be forefront for scientists moving forward and hopefully for the NIH. I think the reality is that for too long, we haven't paid attention to how those investments are actually helping the health concerns of the most disadvantaged in our country. And so my sense is that we're going to see a revolution in where the data are coming from, how we manage data, how we think about the ability to advance those types of studies and also to learn from these experiences, sensors from large scale collaborations that never happened before. But I will say, Lindsay, I think the other thing is that I have a pipe dream that this is going to put health equity at the forefront of all of our science. Because the reality is whether you're talking about developing a drug or you're thinking about a new diagnostic test or you're actually taking on an issue of disparity in a community, all of those things have amazing downstream impacts for issues of disparities and equity. And I think we're going to see a major change in that. I'm really hopeful that this generation will move that forward. Thank you very much, Katrina, for joining us today. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.